forgiving and gentle and faithful. And so as we bend our ear to your word, as we seek to live in light of that, pray that you would give us more grace, that we might hear, that we might obey. We pray this in your name, King Jesus. Amen. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn over to James chapter 4. If you've already read this passage in preparation for this morning, knowing that's where we're going to be, one of the things that you will have seen there is the statement that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. A question for you to ponder as you turn over to James 4. This is a theme that finds its way woven throughout really the whole Bible. And as you think of God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble... The question I want you to consider is, what shoes do you tend to put yourself in? You see, I think if if you're like me, the sort of the the default position is we think of ourselves as the humble and someone else as the proud. When someone does me wrong, without even really thinking or realizing I'm doing it, often I will put myself in the shoes as the one who's humble and who is going to be blessed and graced by God, and that jerk over there is the one who is the proud one, who God is going to get. And in that way, I make myself, make myself feel better. I wonder if that's not just me, but you as well. Something to consider. Because James speaks to Christians, and James uses this verse as a call for Christians to realize that they have, at least his hearers, have not been the humble ones, but are actually the prideful ones who God is going to oppose. So uh, with that to consider, I'm going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 1, and we will read through verse 12. Here's what James says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire, and you don't have. So what do you do? You murder. You covet, and you cannot obtain. So what do you do? You fight, and you quarrel. You don't have, James says, because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then hear what James says. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world 
makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Or your translation may say, I think probably better, the spirit that he made to dwell in us envies intensely. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it, the scripture, says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what should you do? Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Like our banners have said, we're finally there. James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save you, who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, hopefully you noticed this is James's harshest statements yet. James has had some rough things to say so far in this letter, but James 4 goes to a new level. You notice there's a, a directness here that hasn't been had before. So, so James has said some hard things, but they've tended to be a little bit more indirect or implied. So in chapter 1 he said, if any of you lacks wisdom, well the implication is, you lack wisdom, but it's implied, it's said with almost a wink. You know this is true, you lack wisdom, so let him ask God. A little bit later in chapter 1, he says, if someone were to think he's religious and not bridle his tongue, the implication is, you guys aren't bridling your tongue. In chapter 2, he says, uh, if someone were to say to the rich person, sit here in this nice spot, and the poor person sit there in this bad spot, James is implying, he's letting his hearers know that you have a problem with favoritism. In, in James 3, he says, if you have bitter jealousy and strife in your heart, don't boast or lie. The implication, what's said with a wink, is you have strife in your hearts. But all that changes when you get to chapter 4. When you get to chapter 4, James no longer implies, he no longer hints, he no longer winks, he says directly. He calls his people adulterers. He calls them sinners. He says they are double-minded. His tone changes. And did you notice how radical the solution is? Did you see that in verses, in verse 9? It says, be wretched and mourn and cry, weep. Turn your laughter into sadness and your joy into gloom. Something else that you may not have picked up on here is there's a big shift that happens at chapter 4. So in chapters 1, 2, and 3, 
Three times, really, in each chapter, James uses loving familial language. He says, my brothers, my brothers and my sisters. He's friendly, he's loving, he says they're in the same family, and he uses language like my, your mind, we belong together. A few times he even says, my beloved brothers. He says that three times in chapter one, in chapter two, and in chapter three. But when you get to chapter four, this changes. He calls them brothers once. And he doesn't call them my brothers, he just says brothers. In chapter 5, the first two times he calls them brothers, he still doesn't have the word my. In the last two in chapter 5, he does finally come back around and call them my brothers. But after chapter 4, he no longer ever calls them my beloved brothers. Something big has happened in chapter 4. Something that changes James's tone. Something that changes the way that James speaks about the people around him. And the question for us is what has escalated James? Why is he so riled up, so frustrated, so angry with his hearers in chapter 4? Well, that's what we will work to think through and figure out as we look at James chapter 4. Uh, if you're taking notes, the way that we're going to go might sound a touch confusing at first, but I promise it'll, it'll make sense. Uh, we're going to start as you would expect in verse 1, and we're going to progress forward until we get to verse 5, and then we're going to do something a little different. We're going to jump to the end of this section, starting verse 12, and we're going to work backwards. And the reason we're going to do this is because verse 6, I think, is the linchpin that makes sense out of the rest of this section. So verses 1 through 5, I think, are working towards verse 6. Verses 7 through 12 are reflecting from verse 6. So we'll start at the beginning, then go to the end, and then end at verse 6. Does that make sense? Everybody on the same page? You'll get there. Um, So James says in verses 1 and 2, And three, that you are destroying one another. You are biting and devouring, consuming and destroying one another. And James asks the question, where do these fights come from? What is raising up these fights, these quarrels among you? We would be tempted, and I think James's hearers would as well, to respond to that question with, they come up, Because that person is me. That person said something cruel to me and I responded. I didn't start the argument, but I'm going to finish it. But that's not what James says. James says these fights come from within you. This is like what he said in chapter 1, verse 14. He echoes that here. We have these inward desires. We want things we don't have. We convince ourselves that we deserve them, that other people don't, and then we set ourselves into fights, quarrels, arguments, hostilities with one another in order to get the things that we think we deserve. Let me ask you this. Have you ever noticed how selfish we are? Think about this. When you do something wrong, and you know that you've done the wrong thing, How easy do you find it to come up with reasons why you did that? Well, I spoke out of turn there, and that was wrong, but if they would have known everything that would have happened before that moment, I had a rough morning, my family's been hard, I had a hard day at work, whatever it is, 
all these things contribute in, and yes, I said something that I shouldn't have, but it really isn't who I am. I just messed up. But when someone speaks evil against you, are you so gracious? I assume not. I know I'm not. We are a selfish bunch who tend to see the world in ways that benefit us. And we twist and turn everything so that we can pursue our passions, which comes at the cost of those around us. If we're willing to do this in our hearts, it's only a matter of time before what is born in our hearts comes out of our mouths. Jesus says it's from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. James asks, what causes these quarrels and fights among you? You do. You have wicked desires in your heart that spill over, and apparently that has been going on in James's listeners. They have been quarreling and fighting and dividing among one another. And so James says these desires are what produces this result. You don't have, James says, because you don't ask. Well, that sounds a little bit like something that Jesus said. It says, if you ask for anything in my name, it will be given to you. Now, people have taken this and done some strange things with it. It's been, in some quarters, turned into almost kind of a, a magic phrase where if you desire something, what do you do? You place Jesus' name over it, and then you expect to get it. But that misunderstands what it means to say something in someone's name. Let me put it this way. Imagine someone came to you in Gandhi's name and asked for a boatload of bombs. You immediately know they're not coming in Gandhi's name because Gandhi's known for his pacifism. That's not something that would reflect his desires. In the same way, if we come and ask for things for selfish reasons in Jesus' name, there's something amiss there. And so James says you have not because you ask not. And when you do ask, you don't receive what you get because you're asking for it for selfish reasons to feed your own desires, your own warped cravings so that you can be great and so that others can be less. And what makes all of this shocking, at least if we've been paying attention to what James is saying, is these quarrels and these fights are started for selfish and greedy reasons. These people want things they don't have. What have we learned about the rich in in the book of James? In James 2, we saw that the rich were the ones who were oppressing Christians and dragging them off to court. In chapter 5, we'll see soon that James says the rich are storing up for themselves, they're fattening themselves, James says, for the day of slaughter. And in James 4, he says, here's all these people who want to be rich. And what does this pursuit of riches bring out in them? Quarrels, strife, jealousy, and all kinds of problems. So the question I think for us is what leads to these greedy and selfish desires being out of control among James's hearers? What leads to that being the case? I think for us as well. Why is this the case? James says, verses 4 and 5, 
that this is because we are inspired by the wrong thing. Notice what James calls them in verse 4. Do you see that? You adulterous people. This is an insult that was occasionally picked up by the prophets in the Old Testament. And it, it makes sense because adultery has to follow marriage. right? You can't commit adultery if you haven't been married because adultery involves the breaking of a commitment. In marriage, we pledge ourselves to our spouse. And then in adultery, we break that pledge and pledge ourselves to another. And so the prophets would picture Israel as those who God had rescued from Egypt, brought through the wilderness, claimed as his own, and Israel had then turned in faith and responded and given themselves to God. But immediately, the prophets looked out and saw God's people doing what? Giving themselves to another God, and so they would call them adulterers. James picks this up and says, you people are adulterous because you are trying to befriend the world. And you can't, James says, be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time. That makes as much sense as being a bachelor and married. The two don't go together. In our complicated world, some things aren't. Some things are simple. James says that's true here. You can't befriend a world that inspires the selfishness, the greediness, the arrogance of verses 1 through 3. You can't befriend the world that opposes God, that loves argument and intrigue and murder and gossip and juicy stories and to spread those around. You can't befriend that and befriend the God who inspires peace and forgiveness and grace and hope and gentleness and community and humility. The two are diametrically opposed to one another, like water and oil. So why do James's hearers find their desires toward greed and pride and selfishness out of control? The answer is because they want to be like the world. And what is the world like? The world is full of greed, selfishness, quarrels, strife, division, hostility. You pursue that, you befriend that, and it is no surprise that you become like that. That's how worship works. You become like what you worship. So James says if you pursue friendship with the world, it's no surprise that you become friends with the world and that you have these quarrels among you. So what should James's hearers do? If they find themselves quarreling, and they find themselves doing this because they seek to be a friend of the world, what should they do? Look at verse 11. So we're moving to the end, and we're going to start working our way back to the middle. The solution, James says, is really simple. Stop. Not complicated. James says, don't speak evil against one another. That's what you found yourselves doing. You found yourselves quarreling and arguing and murdering and envying and desiring. And, and James says, stop. Just don't. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. 
rather than destroying one another, rather than speaking evil against one another and selfishly and arrogantly judging one another, James says, don't. And by the way, in case anyone's thinking here that James is saying you cannot judge, did you notice what James is doing throughout this section? He calls them adulterers, he calls them sinful, he calls them double-minded, he points out all the things that they're doing wrong, he's judging, right? Um, What James would say is what Jesus said. You remember what Jesus said? He said, don't judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. James might add, don't judge with selfish ambitions at the heart of why you're making your judgments, but judge with right judgment judgment. James gives a little bit of a rationale as to why you're doing this, because if if you speak evil against your brother, if you condemn your brother, if you judge your brother, then you become a judge of the law, and and we know there's actually only one who is judge of the law. That would happen to be God, and we shouldn't put ourselves in that position for obvious reasons. But James' final word on what these people should do is they should simply stop. You're You're speaking evil, you're condemning, you're quarreling, you're gossiping, you're slandering. End it. Now, at first blush, it might appear that James doesn't actually offer any help. That he just simply says, here's what you need to do, the end. But we skipped a few verses. So the the question then is, what might lead James' hearers to stopping what they're doing. Look at verses 7 through 10. Here's what James says should be your inspiration. Rather than setting your mind on selfish things, on wanting things for yourself, being jealous, desiring what you don't have, arguing, fighting, trying to befriend and imitate the world, James says set your mind on humble things. I can't help but read these verses and think of Nineveh. I think James may have had that in mind. Remember the story? Jonah tries to flee from God, gets swallowed by the fish, gets spit up by the fish, finally goes to Nineveh and preaches that riveting sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. What a fascinating sermon. But how does Nineveh respond? They hear it and they repent They put on sackcloth, they pour ashes on their head from the king all the way to the lowest. Jonah even says that the beasts, the animals, put ashes on their head. There's a repentance from the highest to the lowest, and James says that's the right response for you guys. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Turn your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do you find James's words a little strong? Like, does he seem over-aggressive to you when you read this? Like he's slinging out unnecessary insults like adulterer and sinner, double-minded, telling them to stop having a good time and start having a bad time. Does that seem overly aggressive? to you? If it does, let me suggest two things for you. First, we think too lightly of sin. 
And I mean that in two directions. So we think lightly of sin in how it's perceived by God. We don't reckon enough with God's holiness, with God's hatred of sin, with the way that our sin is a rebellion, a shaking of our fist at at God. We we think too lightly of our sin in, in that way. But the second way that we think too lightly of our sin is we think too lightly of our sin in relation to one another. See, our sin also disrupts and destroys the community that we have with one another. What is it that gets James so frustrated in chapter 4? It's not quite what I would expect it to be, is it? There's quarrels and fights among the people. This is what gets James blistering hot. Think about Paul. When is it that Paul loses his patience and directly calls out Peter? What's Peter doing? Well, he's sinning against God by seeking to go back to the law and requiring circumcision. But what is the effect of that? Peter withdraws away from the Gentiles, joins up with the Jews, and there becomes a division among Jesus' people, and Paul says no more. This has to stop here because sin has disastrous effects on our relationship with one another. And so if we think James's words sound too harsh, the first reason I'd give to you as to why we're wrong there is because we think too lightly of sin, but here's the second reason. We tend to rank our sin in a way that makes us feel comfortable. So let me ask you a few questions. When you think of bad sins, what types of things would you include on your list? That's the first question. Second question. When you think of sins that you struggle with, what sins are on that list? And then last question. How much overlap is there between those two lists? You see, I think what we're really good at doing is we make two pretty distinct lists. Here's bad sins, here's sins I struggle with, and they tend to be pretty separate. And this allows us to do something really curious. We can say, yes, I'm woefully sinful, I need Jesus, I'm nothing apart from his his grace, I need his forgiveness, this is who I am. And at the same time, see ourselves as way better than those around us, because we are sinful, yes, but not sinful like them. Right, so I, I think the reason that James's rebuke here sounds particularly harsh is because we're used to thinking of the sins that we struggle with, maybe sins like speaking evil against one another, quarreling, fighting, being selfish. We think of those as lesser sins. And so because they're lesser sins, we don't need James's really harsh language. But James will have none of that. James says, these sins flow from a love of the world, flow from envious desires within you, destroy and corrupt and ruin. And so James says, you guys are double-minded. You're adulterous. You're sinners, and you need to repent. But here's some good news. 
God gives more grace. God gives more grace. Look what he says in verse 6. But he gives more grace, therefore it says what? God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Let that sit for a minute. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Do you believe that? Does how much you care about your reputation reflect that you believe that? I think that's what's going on here in, in James, right? They're quarreling and they're arguing. Why? They don't actually believe what verse 6 says. Does how much you want the things that you don't have reflect your belief that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble? Because if we really believe that, then I think we'd be content with a whole lot less. Does the way that you speak about other people reflect a belief that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble? James's hearers seem to be mixed up on this as well. Do the things that you ask for from God, your prayers, do they reflect a belief that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble? Do you find your prayers selfish and self-centered? The solution to this is remembering that God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. See, here's how verse 6 solves all the problems that are created here. James can say, don't wage war with one another, don't bite and devour, don't murder, don't be jealous. Why? Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. James can say, don't pursue friendship with the world that inspires all, all of this, that's characterized by greed and pride and, and war, why should you not pursue friendship with the world? Because God opposes the proud, the proud and gives grace to the humble. James can say, just stop it. Stop doing all these things. Why? Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. James can say that you should turn your laughing into mourning, that you should draw near to God, that you should repent, that you should act like one who's humble. Why? Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. But God gives more grace. There's nowhere that better displays God's opposition to the proud and grace to the humble than the cross where the humble one hung. Think about it. At the cross, you have on one side these mighty, powerful, world-dominating Roman soldiers. And in league with these soldiers, you have these religious leaders who appear to be victorious and getting what they want. And in conjunction with both of these two groups, 
you have the political elite, the powerful political ones who quarrel and fight and are ambitious and seek after their own desires. You've got all these proud, powerful ones together on one side, and on the other side, you have who? Jesus, hanging, bloodied on a tree. It takes three days, but three days later, what James says is proved true. That God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, because what happens three days later? Three days later, the humble one, Jesus, is raised from the dead. These mighty Roman soldiers find their knees knocking, their foreheads sweating, fainting as if dead because they don't know what to do. The religious leaders find themselves on the run, not sure how to respond, trying to craft lies to hold their ship together that is quickly falling apart and sinking under the water. You have all of this chaos in the ones who were proud, and the humble one is raised back to life. And who's there with a front row seat? A few humble ladies get to see all of this shake out. Indeed, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, and the world has never been the same. And so ever since that first Thursday before Good Friday, Jesus' people have gathered together to receive grace from the Lord. For he is indeed the one who gives more grace. We gather to receive this supper as we remember Jesus' death and his resurrection. As we look forward to this humble king's coming again, we call this the Lord's Supper because it is the supper that is provided to us from the Lord. And for this reason, this supper is for those who submit to Jesus as Lord who affirm that Jesus is indeed the resurrected king and who obey this king. We simply call these people Christians. So if if you're with us this morning and you're a Christian, you look to Jesus as your hope, you obey this resurrected king, then we invite you to participate with us, to join in on this supper that we are to share. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure if you are, then let me encourage you with two things. First, don't participate in this supper, for it's, it's not for you. And I, I don't say that in a, a mean, cruel, boxing you out kind of way. I say that because this supper is declaring that Jesus has indeed died and resurrected and will come again. We're remembering his body and his blood, and if you're not a Christian, you can't declare these things. So the the first thing I want you to do is not participate in this meal. But the second thing I want you to do is I want you to talk with someone. You see, one of the beautiful things about Jesus's kingdom is it includes Right? Jesus' grace doesn't stop with the people that are in it. You see, all of us in this room were at one point not followers of Jesus. We were cut off 
from God, enemies of God, and Jesus in his grace has saved us, called us to himself, and given us a new heart and a new hope. And so if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure, talk with someone around you, maybe someone who brought you, or you can talk with me after the service and find out more about who this Jesus is, about what this Jesus has done, and about what it means to follow this resurrected king. If you're here and you are a Christian, let me go ahead and invite you to grab the cup and the bread. You might go ahead and open the top of it. The the bread represents Jesus' body. As we take this, we remember that Jesus gave his body for his people. Here's what Paul says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said... This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, as we feel the bread break, between our teeth. We remember your body broken. We remember that you gave yourself for sins that you had not committed, for sins that were committed against you, and that in giving yourself, we receive forgiveness. And so we thank you for your selfless love, for the grace that you give us more of each day. We pray that we would live in light of that. The the cup represents Jesus' blood. Jesus passed this around to his disciples as well. And they all shared in the one cup because they all shared in the one Jesus. There's a strange unity that happens when Jesus' people find their one hope in the one cup. Here's what Paul says. In the same way, also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, mighty King, 
victorious one. Picture of humility. We remember this morning your blood that was poured out for our sake. Your blood that washes away sin. That brings forgiveness to us who don't deserve it. Those of us who cheered on as you were slain and murdered. As the God of life was brought to death by those that he'd given life to, we repent of our selfish, greedy desires. Wash us clean, we pray. Fill us with your spirit that we might walk humbly, that we might be obedient, that we might live lives that reflect the goodness and glory of your name. Teach us to be humble. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.